Hey, Mika here. Before I get started with this bonus episode of the Miked Up Podcast, I want to let people know about a very special event happening. I'm coordinating a special pop-up featuring Benny Starr and uh, Yoga Mama Ash, aka Ashley L, on Instagram. Um, It's a really special event that's curated specifically for young black descendants of the Gullah culture. It's specifically for us. It's a safe space. It's an unapologetic space. It's a secret pop-up. The location is not going to be disclosed until you purchase your ticket. And what I want to let you guys know is that the tickets are currently on sale. So what you need to do is check the description of this podcast and find information to the event. And you'll also be getting a password. It's a secret event just like that. We want to make sure that we hold space for black folk here in Charleston. And this event is specifically for that. And it's going to be filled with food. We're going to have gift bags uh, featuring local black artisans. We're going to have filmmakers present. You name it. It's going to be a really, really fun evening. So look for that information in the description of this podcast. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can do so. You'll find my email address in the description, but you can also find me on Instagram. Sometimes the uh, sliding in my DMs on Instagram at the Charleston Activist Network is the best way to reach me. So if you have any questions, please reach out there. And just before, just so people know, this is a black event and this is to celebrate black culture. So you know what I mean when I say that. All right, take care and I hope to see you guys at the pop-up November 10th. It's called The Conjure Sessions. Mark your calendar, and it's on Veterans Day weekend, so you don't got nothing to do on Monday, so you might as well get it in on Saturday and party into the Sunday morning, okay? All right, see you soon. Take care. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to a bonus episode of the Miked Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and um, I'm coming to you following um, participation in an event uh, last night that took place in Charleston. Um, You know, I have a lot of thoughts in my mind um, as I reflect on what I prepared, what I presented on, and how it was received, the reaction I received afterwards, and the the lack of reaction I received afterwards as well. Uh, You know, what really inspires my activism here in Charleston and what inspires, uh, uh, what inspired this podcast was really um, uh, several moments, but I believe the signature moment was uh, the sentiments that were expressed following the tragic uh, Mother Emanuel massacre that took place uh, right in the heart of downtown Charleston. As a young person, um, I I was brought up and raised primarily in New Jersey, uh, central New Jersey, um, in an area considered part of the New York metro area. And um, rather abruptly, my father decided to shake things up professionally and semi-retire and return to his native area. And and we moved to Wadmalaw Island back in the 90s. And, um, you know, I I had to finish three years, the last three years of high school here in Charleston. And um, what I felt then as a young teenager was very similar to what I felt following the massacre. Um, In the face of so much atrocity, so much of uh, 
erasure from our history books and so much in the face of so much just racial disparity in this city you know we're often told to love and embrace our oppressor and and, and I just don't understand what that reflex is I actually I do understand um and I identify it as an act of white supremacy an extension of white supremacy you see I don't mind and it doesn't bother me when I see folks forgive I forgive often I think forgiveness is essential but with that forgiveness I don't know why people are expecting and encouraging that those who've been oppressed or hurt have to love and embrace their uh, assailant or their you know the, the person who victimized them and if you experience trauma here in Charleston or as a black person throughout the world, if you experience trauma as a person from a marginalized community, I think we need to start centering the feelings of those who are traumatized rather than the reaction. You know, I, I always hearken back and, and reflect on my time here as a teenager because what I kept seeing in Charleston, and especially in the school setting, was so much disenfranchisement and so much blatant racism. I mean, it, it, I didn't have the word power at age 16 and 17 to articulate what it was that I was feeling, but to literally be educated by white supremacists and, and racist educators who would not commit my name to memory, who told me I wasn't intelligent enough to attend a four-year college, it, it just, it really struck me you know, what I was expected to do so um, about five years ago, I moved back down here to the Charleston area to be closer to my, my family, to my folks. And not too long after I moved here, the Emanuel AME uh, shooting took place. And it, what we saw, and I've had friends and family participate in, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to alienate, I'm not trying to um, minimize how folks find comfort in times of extreme stress and trauma. But I will say this, that the showing of, the outpouring of quote-unquote unity, the hand-holding, the walking across the bridge in mass, these, this huge interracial or, you know, a mixed, mixed group of folks reaching out um, after that tragedy um, really didn't make me feel good at all. If you live in Charleston, if you work in Charleston, if you educate yourself in Charleston, you're faced with so much racism and microaggressions every day. And no one stands up for the marginalized. No one seldom stands up and says, no, I'm going to fight for you. And so I asked the question back in August of 2017, you know, Charleston, do you I didn't ask the question. I actually made a statement. Um, I wrote a piece saying, you know, Dear Charleston, racial justice shouldn't require black acquiescence. I don't think that um, a lot of folks want unity. I don't think a lot of folks want racial equity. I think what they want is to feel good about their choices. And I was privileged and honored to be invited to Miss Emily Kerr's Charleston Hope uh, her event last night was called Charleston 7 and 7. So I was one of seven speakers who was asked to present. Um, we, had to add, we had to answer a question or, or offer our perspective or our prescriptions on, you know, Charleston unites when. 
So each featured speaker began their presentation with Charleston Unites Win. And you had um, some pretty interesting presenters, um, some who I hope to continue a relationship with, some um, not so much. I'm be very honest. This is an unapologetic podcast. Um, And what I felt, the overwhelming sentiment, and this is feedback from people who were actually in the crowd as well, is that there was a lot of hand-holding, a lot of walking across the bridge, and I mean that in a, in, a, in a like a metaphorical sense. You know, it was a lot of the same sentiment we saw following the AME massacre, but not much substance. And after I I, um, I practiced my delivery, I practiced my presentation, uh, like maybe it's literally probably 50 times, and then I, I had my mom act as my audience. And my mother is a 68-year-old woman who lived in the Jim Crow South um, of North Carolina. So... I said, Mom, you know, sit, sit and, and listen to my presentation. And all she just continued to say after I completed my seven-minute spiel was that people don't know their history. Do people know their history? Do people know what you're talking about? Because she was learning something new with what I had presented. And I said, my some of them know and don't care. Some of them refuse to want to know. And that's what I feel uh, is missing from a lot of these uh, events is that people are not arming themselves with the right information, um, either from just pure negligence or a lack of will. Um, Because I believe if you actually study uh, racial inequity, if you actually study race in America from scholars of color, from, from folks who are really good at, at uncovering the truth, you'd have no choice but to make sure you center the oppressed in your presentation. You don't center yourself. You don't center what assuages your guilt or your white guilt. You don't center, um, you know, the collective. You can't erase race. And I think a lot of times we get so afraid, and I'm not gonna say we, a lot of people get so afraid of mentioning race <laughs> in a discussion about race in a city whose construction was built on the um, exploitation of free black labor. You have to mention race. And so I, I felt some of the presenters struggled with that. And this is not, again, I want to, I really want to be very clear. This is not an attack on Emily's event by no means. I think what she's attempting to do, the conversation she's attempting to facilitate is very important. And actually having spoken with her before the event and the night of the event, I feel as if she's looking for the right answers. She's on her way. That's how I feel as of today. But I I will say that, again, the reaction I got from those in the crowd who approached me afterward and some of the messages in my inbox, um, they said the same thing. Like, you know, it was very cookie cutter until perhaps I spoke and this is not about me but I will say this because I presented so differently from my peers because my presentation was um uh, me I was telling I was telling the audience that they need to honor rebellion because it was such a rebellious presentation and it was a departure from what they were hearing um I had to ask myself I had to sit and reflect and sit in that today and, and wanted to come on the podcast and and see where are we. If you listen to this podcast, if you listen to any other episodes, you, you kind of get the gist of 
of my brand of activism, kind of get the gist of what my value systems are. I just think that in any conversation about racial equity, you have to center the oppressed. And in this state specifically, you have to start centering indigenous and black folk. And you can't just dance around the issues. You, you can't be afraid to call it what it is. Last night, um, I said something to the effect. Um, it was a seven-minute presentation. I'm not going to recite the whole thing. But I started off by saying we needed to honor rebellion. And that rebellion is the voice or the language of the oppressed. And it's, it's, it, it would behoove us all here in Charleston, if we're leaders, if we're activists, if we're politicians, it would behoove us to study moments of rebellion throughout the state, moments of uprisings, um, both here and across the globe. It would really serve us well because we here in Charleston are experiencing rapid gentrification, which is a very violent and, and intentional act. So you have all of these working class uh, families of color being displaced at such a rapid and violent clip, all in the interest of capitalism and, and irresponsible growth, commercial growth. And so what happens when you continue to push oppressed people? What happens when you continue to, to present them with choices that aren't choices and conditions that aren't just? They will rebel. And I believe Charleston is poised for another rebellion. Now, what that might look like, I, I don't know. But I know one thing. I know we need to take a heed of what informed Denmark, V.C. We need to take heed of what informed some of our predecessors who rose up and said, enough is enough. I'm going to snatch my humanity back. I'm not going to wait for a magnanimous white person to give me my freedom. I'm going to have to take it. And I think that's something we need to understand here in Charleston. And I think when I say that, many might arrive at the conclusion that I'm speaking of violence, and I'm not. But I will say this, rebellion takes on all forms. And if black Charleston saw what happened following the Emanuel AME shooting and got angry that their church, their beloved church a cornerstone of the african-american community here in charleston if they felt angry enough to take to the streets they would have had every right to do so that's rebellion and they're justified in that hell that's the least they could do and so when people think that i'm i'm calling for tamika's calling for violence ah, you, you can say whatever you want to say but like I mentioned last night, there's something about that rage that is righteous in nature. It's a righteous rage. It's divine. It's not informed by just vitriol. It's informed by years and generations of oppression. We carry this oppression in our bodies so much so that black women are dying at childbirth or after childbirth. And, and the scientists have linked it directly just to just being black in America. We're dying at rates higher than other lesser developed countries with, with less access to healthcare. So you tell me what the common denominator is. So we're actually carrying this oppression. We're carrying this trauma in our DNA. And there's studies that, that support that. So why wouldn't we get angry? Why wouldn't we take to the streets? Why wouldn't we raise our fists? Why wouldn't we, you know, organize and, and refuse to work until we're allowed to unionize and, and demand more and demand justice? 
I think it's time for us to start not only honoring rebellion, but studying it. And study rebellion and understand that it's righteous to move and to take to the streets. I just hope that uh, we stop having these discussions around unity and start really talking about the true solution, which is to divest from white supremacy, which is to actually leverage your privilege, shift your resources. You know, I am so profoundly grateful to the ownership team um, that uh, that owns the Royal American and also Taco Boy. Um, I shouted the, the woman out on my personal Facebook, but I'm so grateful for them because they gave us event space when we hosted the Black Voters Matter event. That's the type of privilege you could use or give to someone else, extend to someone else from a marginalized community. You know, shift resources. That's just one instance. But pay, hey, pay a black woman. Support a Patreon page of a content creator that's creating dynamic and dope content. Um, donate. Support a black woman-led nonprofit. Why not? Why not support people who are actually doing the anti-oppression work over the long haul? Let's stop talking about unity and stop romanticizing unity as if it's something that you get after you just decide to hold my hand and walk across a bridge. That ain't unity. That's just performative. And there was a there was a performative presentation or two last night. And I did not appreciate and I felt it to be insulting to tell people that to, have to deal with racism in Charleston, you need to love your assailant. You do not need to love people who are literally trying to murder you. You can forgive. Hell, I've forgiven people. I've forgiven my rapist. I've forgiven people who've offended me, who've, who've brutalized me personally. I don't even mind sharing that. But yeah, I've forgiven them. I don't let that rage consume me, but I will tell you this. I ain't loving them. I ain't putting any money in their pocket, and I'm not hugging them. And that's not necessary. It's not necessary for me to get justice or for me to be at peace. So let's stop telling black people that they need to swallow sorrow and internalize trauma because it quite literally is killing us. And that's not hyperbolic. That's literally a fact substantiated by heart disease, substantiated by our, our you know, predisposition to diabetes. And all of that is in our genetics. The stress is in our genetics. The conditions by which we had to live is in, it's in our genetics. So for you to continually try to try to shovel sorrow into my mouth and tell me that I have to swallow it, I not only object, but I call foul on that. And if I ever see this one presenter again, I'm going to tell him how violent that was. And you can't cloak, you can't cloak your anti-oppression work in a lot of religiosity. And I have profound respect for people who belong to churches. Absolutely. I come from a very religious household. My twin brother is, you know, a leader. He is a pastor. And, you know, he, he works as a chaplain and in several capacities with religion. But one thing you're not going to do is anesthetize my pain with hyper-religiosity, especially from a white perspective, a very westernized version of Christianity that centers whiteness and perpetuates white supremacy. You're not going to get up on a mic and tell me that I need to swallow my sorrow. And I think that's the other part. We have to stop centering white voices when it comes to anti-oppression. You know, you know who has the answers about how to solve racism? 
the very people who are the victims. A lot of these conversations, sometimes I think maybe some white folk need to fishbowl. You know what I mean? They, they need to have a stage with black people just talking about their lived experiences, not giving them advice, but talking about what they go through day to day. And, need to, and, and white folk need to take note. They need to take note and listen and observe and not offer prescriptions. I think that would be the the most uh, direct feedback I give Emily is stop centering white cis male voices. I think you need to have more trans women. I think you need to have more women of, of color from various backgrounds, from various religion, religious viewpoints. I, you know, there's a lot of uh, racism in our version of Christianity here, and, I, and, and you can't have that at the helm of, of your events. And um, nor it was not, it, it wasn't specifically or explicitly, um, yeah, it wasn't explicitly religious, but there were some undertones there um, that I would uh, definitely um, cons- reconsider if I were organizing another event like this. So uh, I think, you know, in people's haste to solve the problem, we want to arrive at the solution before we do the work. And the work is very gritty. And the work isn't just donating to a nonprofit. Um, Outside of Emily's nonprofit, I know there's a number of organizations here in Charleston. Um, And again, I want to separate Emily. Emily is trying to do good work and address some pretty tough problems. But there are other nonprofits who are out here profiting from black pain. And they're trafficking in black pain and brown pain and, and indigenous pain. And they're exploiting our pain to appear to be some sort of, you know, paternalistic cure to racism. All the while, they're just lining their pockets and, and, and funding their own self-interests um, with this veneer of racial equity. So, um, you know, we need to, to make sure that we're aware of that. But I, I think that... Uh, Donating to a nonprofit can be tricky. I think what we really need to do is pay people directly. Direct giving is like a fucking no-no to a lot of people. Direct giving is like, I don't know, people, I got to track it. I gotta, I've got to be able to claim it on my taxes. Now, nah, that's transactional. If you give just to get something back, let's rethink that. You can't give to a black woman. You can't pay for someone's, um, you know, I don't know bus pass or you know can you pay for someone you know maybe you get like a, a Trader Joe's gift card and you reload it every month you know maybe it's a $50 limit or something or you pay them directly direct deposit you can't do that directly or you have to get that tax write off so we have to think about how we address some of these uh, issues around race and so you know donating is not the answer either sometimes you just have to ask the people who are being oppressed what do you need and more often than not you're going to get very candid and honest answers look I just want to feed my family look I, I just need help um, knowing how to how to get out of this domestic violence situation I need I need housing I need uh, temporary housing I need something I need a coat for my kid when the winter months arrive you know you, they'll tell you what they need and if you don't feel comfortable with direct giving, I don't know what you're really comfortable with. I don't know, like, you know, we have to really examine how we um, view charity. And if only nonprofits, if only nonprofits are worth or worthy of money, I, I think we're doing it wrong. We're hustling backwards with that one. So those were just some of my thoughts. 
um, from last night. Um, I really welcomed the opportunity, didn't take it for granted, prepared uh, rigorously for the night. And I knew I was going to present a point of view that wasn't in line with the rest of my contemporaries. But a, a few of them appreciated what I had to say. And uh, to them, I say thank you as well. To Emily, I want to say thank you. And to listeners of the Mic'd Up podcast, just remember, justice, social justice, racial equity doesn't require that the oppressed people lay down and swallow their sorrow. There's something righteous and something divine about standing up, yelling enough, and reclaiming your own humanity. You think Harriet Tubman came down that Combahee River and lit up all those plantations and freed all those slaves so you can hold your head down? Hell no. (laughs) You think Bree Newsom climbed that flagpole and took that hateful Confederate flag down so we can sit here and swallow sorrow? Hell no. You know, our foremothers and forefathers sacrificed so much so that we can speak up. We can call a spade a spade, so to speak. And we can call out injustice. And guess what? It it ain't always going to be comfortable when you do it. And you might be out on a limb by yourself like I often am. But let me tell you, there's something so freeing about speaking your mind and giving zero fucks about white comfort. Thanks for listening to the bonus podcast. I hope uh, hope you got something from it. This was a rant. This was a little self-indulgent, but I'm entitled to that. I'm a black woman. (laughs) I get to talk what I want to talk. I get to talk my shit at least once a week. All right, so stay tuned for the next episode of Mic'd Up. Thanks for listening. Peace out.